Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week, our meandering tour takes us through the quaint towns and rugged wilderness of New Hampshire. We're arriving just in time, right in the middle of the legendary Turning of the Leaves, a sight of such vibrant colors at its peak that it draws tourists from all over the world. With such broad expanses of dense mountain forest, it's a perfect place to experience the beautiful orange and red hues of death and decay. But with so much untamed wilderness, it's easy to imagine how, even in our age of GPS and satellite imaging, some dark corners might remain unexplored, although not necessarily uninhabited. Despite the gorgeous scenery, New Hampshire's Mount Washington, with its rugged, sometimes barren terrain, is one of the most challenging sections of the famous Appalachian Trail. In fact, Mount Washington is often considered the most dangerous small mountain in the world, boasting a death toll almost half that of the substantially taller and seemingly more formidable Mount Everest. So what makes such a relatively little peak, little in the grand scheme of killer mountains, that is, so deadly? To put it simply, Mother Nature. Mount Washington is a magnet for intense and often unpredictable weather. It holds the distinction of having the highest wind velocity ever recorded at a surface weather station, topping out just north of 231 miles per hour, which, unsurprisingly, can blow unsuspecting hikers dangerously off course. Then there's the fact that the temperature can plummet insanely fast and far. It's been known to reach wind chills in the murderously cold range of minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. But, according to one experienced climber, there's more than just the weather to be afraid of on the mountainside. As the oldest outdoor group in the United States, there are few people that know how to survive in the wilderness of Mount Washington 
better than the Appalachian Mountain Club. They not only promote the protection, enjoyment, and understanding of the mountains, forests, waters, and trails of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, a quote directly off of their website, but also run a number of lodges, huts, and cabins throughout the region. So, in early spring, when a member of the Mountain Club's crew was preparing to head up to open a cabin for the season on the slopes of Mount Washington, no one gave it a second thought. It wouldn't be long, after all, before savvy backpackers and hikers came knocking, looking for a place to stay during their mountainside treks. A senior member of the crew, it was a trip he'd done plenty of times before. He collected and double-checked his gear, and made sure to prepare for anything the unpredictable mountain might try to throw at him. Cold-weather gear, safety equipment, and rations. Radio in hand, he set off up the mountainside. He would radio back to the lodge once he reached his destination, he said. Let them know he'd made it safe and sound. Hours passed. The time when he should have arrived at the cabin came and went. Maybe he'd taken his time, the others thought. It had been a beautiful spring day, after all. Could be he just lost track of time and forgot to radio. Or maybe he had gotten turned around. After all, even experienced hikers ran into a snag from time to time. But as the sun faded and darkness fell, with no response on the other end of the radio, worry began to set in. There wasn't much they could do during the night, though. It was too far to go in the dark, and if something happened to them, them stumbling about in the pitch-black wilderness wasn't going to be of much help to anyone. An increasing sense of concern and dread hanging over them, they resolved to set out at first light. As soon as morning crested the horizon, with still no response on the radio, the small group set off. The birdsong of early spring and the bright rays of sunlight sparkling off dew-heavy leaves made them feel a little easier, their moods a little lighter. The worries that had gripped them in the night seemed somehow lessened now in the light of day. He was an experienced outdoorsman, after all, there was a simple explanation. Had to be. And by noon, they'd all be laughing about it over a hot meal. After several hours of hiking, the trees parted and they broke into a clearing. At its center sat a modest log cabin, and there were clear signs of recent activity in the yard out front. Someone had been there. There were boot marks in the damp soil, and it looked as though wood had been chopped for a fire. But despite the constant chill in the air, not a wisp of smoke billowed from the cabin's chimney. And as they looked closer, they realized the entire building was still boarded up tight, the windows covered in wide planks of rough lumber. The only portal that looked to have been touched was the front door, its padlock hanging loose on the open hinge. They called out to their friend, but there was no reply. No movement from the cabin, no sound from the forest, except the rustle of leaves and occasional chirp of a bird or squirrel. Cautiously, they entered the cabin, again calling out. Inside, they found a pack propped up against one wall and a small assortment of gear spread out on the furniture. There was a stack of kindling and paper in the open wood stove, too, a half-finished attempt at building a fire. And not far away, the radio, its case broken and wire guts spilling out through the cracks. As they moved toward the kitchen, one of them noticed an electric lantern on the floor, still on. Light dimmed to a timid glow from hours of continuous use. As he bent to pick up the lantern, a hint of movement caught his eye. The door to the cabinet under the sink had shifted slightly, as though something, or someone, was inside. 
swallowing nerves, they opened the door. And inside, curled in a tight, shivering ball and clutching an axe in cramped white fists, was their friend, eyes wild and staring. They quickly and carefully lifted him out, wrapping blankets around him and pulling him close, trying their best to warm his shivering body. What had happened? they asked. Why was he under the sink? And why didn't he radio for help? But as hard as they tried, they weren't able to get a word out of him. It wasn't until days later, back in civilization and the safety of his room at the local hospital, that he finally recovered enough to recount, in broken fragments, what had happened. As his friends had suspected, he'd taken his time getting to the cabin. It was a beautiful day for a walk, and he was in no hurry. By the time he had reached his destination, it was late afternoon. He had unlocked the cabin, dropped his pack and a few of his things, and set about the first order of business. Make a fire. He'd heat the place up, radio back to the lodge, then settle in for a bite to eat. The rest of the work opening the cabin could wait until morning. He chopped wood in the front yard and set about building a fire. Outside, it was getting dark, fast. As he focused on stacking the kindling in the stove, his hand fumbled as a strange sensation washed over him. The hairs on his neck began to prickle, and he suddenly felt the overwhelming, oppressive feeling that he was being watched. He froze, trying to decide if the feeling was real or just his lizard brain playing tricks on him. An animal, maybe? Something that had stowed away in the cabin over the winter. But the weight of the feeling was too much to take. He whirled around and scanned the room. The lantern illuminated the cabin in a soft glow, casting long shadows on the floor and walls on the sparse furniture. But there was nothing in the room. Nothing he could see, at least. The feeling, though, didn't go away. He grabbed the lantern and his radio, walked to the door, and threw the bolt, just in case. His finger hovered over the call button on the radio, seeking the comfort of a familiar voice. But as it did, his gaze was pulled to the window beside the door. A dagger of ice stabbed at his spine. From the other side of the boarded-up window, two eyes met his own, piercing, unblinking, burning with feverish intensity. He stumbled backwards and away from the window, numb fingers dropping the radio to crash on the floor. His mind raced to grapple with his situation. The intensity of the stare, the unnaturally luminous orbs deep-set in a pale, distorted face, somehow both perfectly impassive and dripping with malice. What do you want? he shouted, more on instinct than out of any expectation of an answer. And none came. Thank God he hadn't removed the window boards. They were still firmly nailed shut. At least, as far as he knew. He'd never bothered to check. He grabbed the axe from where it leaned against the stove and gently stepped to check the other windows, conscious of every creak and groan of the floorboards underfoot. He didn't dare tear his gaze from the silent watcher, but so desperately he wished he could close his eyes and blink the thing away. He backed toward another window, and, sparing a quick glance to make sure the boards were still intact, felt another thrill of terror course through his veins. The face, the same face, it was at that window too. And at the next, and the next. But it wasn't just the eyes peering through the boards, not anymore. 
it was now somehow wedged between the glass and the wood, as though morphing through the solid wood, distorted and twisted, cold and emotionless. They were surrounding him, stabbing into him with their icy stare from every angle, impossibly clear and somehow getting closer. He stood in the middle of the cabin and set the lantern down, grasping the axe with both hands. And as he watched, the faces began to push through the window pane, as if being birthed through the glass, a corpse face surfacing through swampy waters. It was more than he could take. What good was an axe against something like this? There was nowhere to go, no way to get out. And even if he did, it was out there. They were out there. With white glacial intensity, the faces loomed at him from every window, elongating, writhing and squirming hungrily toward him. His heart pounded in his ears, and the edges of his vision began to go black. The last thing he remembered was making a dash for the only enclosed space within reach. The kitchen cabinet under the sink. He climbed in, pulled his knees up, and closed the door, clutching the axe tightly. And then there was blackness. Until the door was flung open and he was pulled by his friends into the light of day. Whatever happened that night, his memory refused to allow him full access. And maybe that's for the best, because sometimes the darkness that lurks in the deepest corners of the wilderness is something that's best left in the shadows. Let's hear some fiction. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Ambrose Stolliker. Ambrose Stolliker lives in the Pacific Northwest with his wife and son. He is the author of two horror novellas, Old Hollow, 2018, and The Death Shoot, April 2019, both from indie publisher Aurelia Leo, LLC. His short stories can be seen in Stupefying Stories magazine, Weird City, Creepy Campfire Quarterly, Ghostlight Magazine, Sex and Murder Magazine, Hunger Magazine, Sanitarium Magazine, The Tincture Journal, Caron Coin Press's State of Horror, Louisiana, Volume 2 Anthology, and D.A. Owen Publications Horror Anthology, Muffled Scream 1, Corner of the Eye. He is a former newspaper reporter and magazine journalist, and is currently at work on the second draft of a new horror novel. When he isn't writing, Mr. Stolliker works as a digital marketing manager at a global technology company. Children of the Night, join me for Ambrose Stolliker's The Darkness in the Valley Below, a Tales to Terrify original. ever tell you about the time a fat girl popped my cherry in dad's pickup? My brother asked me. Only about a thousand times, Mick. Kathy Mueller. Jesus, she was fat. I'm talking hippopotamus fat, man. Yeah, Mick, I know. We went to school with her, remember? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. My brother's recounting of his encounter with the hippopotamus fat Kathy Mueller constituted the first words to be uttered in my father's deer perch in several hours. The drive out to our current location. Corkscrew Mountain, had also been quiet and tense. Mick lays deer rifle across his legs and continued. Anyway, where was I? All right, Dad's truck. Well, you've been in that truck. You know that space is at a premium in the cab. 
Why we didn't use the bed, I'll never know. Maybe it was the passion of the moment, or I cut him off. Hey, Mick, how about you tell me where the hell you've been the last eight weeks? Mom and Dad were worried sick. Me too. Nah, you too. He rubbed the top of my head. That's very touching, Denny. Very touching indeed. I pushed his hand away, annoyed. Cut the crap, man. His smile disappeared. Look, I don't want to talk about it. Not yet, anyway. Okay, fine. Can you at least tell me what the hell we're doing out here? Hunting deer. Yeah, no shit. But why? It's been almost ten years since the last trip with Dad. I'm surprised the perch is still standing. Can't I spend time with my little brother without having an ulterior motive? The hurt in his voice seemed genuine enough, and I started to feel a little bad. At the same time, I couldn't shake the feeling that something was very definitely wrong. Two months before, I'd received a call from Mick's CEO, a lieutenant something or other, telling me my brother had been wounded while in patrol in the Korangal Valley. While he didn't tell me the exact nature of the injury, he did say it was minor, and that Mick was expected to rejoin his unit in a week to ten days. I'd expected to hear from Mick while he convalesced, but I didn't. So, when I received a second call from the same Lieutenant something or other a few weeks later, telling me Mick and his entire unit were missing somewhere in the mountains of Afghanistan, it would be an understatement to say my parents and I were worried. Weeks went by, nothing. Not a peep from the army or my brother. Then, out of nowhere, Mick showed up at my parents' house in Omak. I made the three-hour drive from my apartment in Seattle and found Mick packing the bed of his monster-sized Chevy Silverado with camping and hunting gear. When I pulled up behind his truck and got out, and he ran over to me and put me in a bear hug. For a man who'd recently been wounded and then gone missing, he looked perfectly fine to me. Except for one thing, and I'll never forget this. He had this manic look in his eyes and he moved about like a little kid who's hopped up on too much sugar. What the hell is this? I'd asked. You going hunting? No, little brother. We're going hunting. It's been way too long. Mick, where the hell have you... He held up a hand. Later, Gator, okay? I promise I'll tell you everything. Later. In my house, I found my parents sitting next to one another on the sofa. They both looked uncomfortable as they watched Mick continue to load the truck with gear. He, uh, wants to go hunting, I told them. Yes, we know. This was my mother. He showed up about an hour ago with that crazed look in his eyes. I'm worried about him, Denny. He won't talk to us. I'm worried something awful happened to him over there. My father put an arm around my mother and turned to me. Could you go with him, Dennis? You're the closest one to him. Maybe he'll talk to you, tell you what happened. I sighed. To be honest, I didn't relish the thought of going out into the middle of the North Cascades to shoot deer with my brother. And as much as my parents may have believed Mick and I were still close, we'd actually drifted apart in the years since I'd left for school in Seattle and he'd joined the army. But I told them I would go, so I did. Still feeling a little bit bad, I decided to direct the conversation to safer ground. Please tell me you brought something to eat. His eyes twinkled mischievously as he threw his backpack at me, hitting me square in the face. Just the usual fare. Despite my worries over my brother's disappearance and strange behavior, I smiled when my hand touched crinkly cellophane at the bottom of the pack. Snickers. <laughs> and they're frozen too, I said, pulling out the entire package. For the love of God, would someone please tell me why mom keeps them in the freezer? It's not like they're gonna go bad or anything. These things have a shelf life of about a thousand years. Nah, those are Twinkies you're talking about. I put a bunch of them in your pack, too. Hey, uh, give me one of those, will you? Here you go, fuckstick, I said, tossing one over the side of the deer perch. He watched it hit ground twenty feet below, and made as if he were going to punch me in the shoulder. When I cringed in anticipation, he laughed and then mashed his knuckles into my shoulder. Two for flinching. And you don't give me one of those things, you're going over the side next. Sure, no problem. I pulled half of the wrapper off one of the Snickers bars, then ran my tongue over the top layer of chocolate and handed it to him. All yours. He bit the candy bar in half and said with his mouth full, You're uh, pretty good at that. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. You've had a lot of practice putting things that are long and hard in your mouth. I couldn't help but laugh. 
As far back as I could remember, my brother and I had gone to great pains and taken tremendous joy in finding new and innovative ways to call one another's sexuality into question. I sighed. I uh, walked into that one. I pulled a Twinkie out of my backpack and hit him in the face with it. There, it's full of cream, and we both know you can't get enough of that. He nodded. Well played, my good man, well played. And that's pretty much how the conversation went for the balance of the day. For a while, it really did feel like old times, and I remembered just how close my brother and I had once been. How he'd always been there for me. Like the time he'd beaten the snot out of Trent Baker because he'd taken my milk money away from me in the third grade. Trent was three years older than Mick and had 20 pounds on him, but that didn't save him from having his face turned into pulp berries. I mean, Mick took some pretty hard licks from Trent, but it didn't appear to have phased him as we walked home from school that day. It was worth every second, he'd said triumphantly, fat lip and all. That was my brother in a nutshell. After I left for school in Seattle, he'd wandered around eastern Washington doing odd jobs and, of course, getting into scraps with just about anybody willing to oblige him. The day he joined the army, neither I nor my parents were surprised, and I remember my father saying, the only thing Mick's ever been really good at is fighting, so it's probably high time he started getting paid for it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. The darkening sky brought me back to the present. Mick's steady gaze was leveled at the treetops, and I remember that was the first time that he looked calm. No, not calm. Something more than that. Resigned. You know, he began thoughtfully, this place reminds me of over there a lot. Yeah, how so? I asked, hoping he'd hear the interest in my voice and finally open up about where he'd been all this time. He fell quiet again for several moments, and I thought for sure he'd gone back into his shell. But eventually, he started talking. You know I was in the hospital, right? Yeah, we know. Your CO told us. A field hospital. Yeah, well, that's true. I was at a field hospital, but only for a short time. My wound healed quickly. Uh, the physical one, anyway. He paused. Well, the mental scars, those take longer, the docs tell me. I was quiet for a moment. You were in a psychiatric hospital. It was more a statement than a question. Mick nodded. Listen, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. You can't expect to do five tours of duty in the combat zone and come away clean. Mick shook his head. You don't understand. I was fine up until three months ago. Mick, I seriously doubt you were fine. How could you be? He grabbed my forearm. Listen to me. It wasn't like that. I wasn't on the verge of a mental breakdown or anything. Something happened. He let it go and regarded the treetops again. I saw something. I paused. What do you mean you saw something? 
When he didn't answer right away, I went on. Look, if it's a matter of military secrets or something like that, you don't have to worry. I'm a journalist. Anything you tell me in confidence stays between us. And, I added, patting him on the back, I'm your brother. You can trust me. He looked at me then. Yeah, I know I can trust you. That's why I brought you out here with me. I frowned. What are you talking about? Forget that for now. Do you want to hear what happened or not? Yeah, whatever you want, Mick. I'm here for you, man. He took in a deep breath and let it out in a long, whispering sigh before starting. Well, my unit's main mission over there was to pacify and secure the Korangal Valley. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's in the northeastern part of the country, right? Yeah, right. It's the Taliban's main base of operations. The Afghan government has no real hold over it. He paused and looked around. His eyes took on a wry expression. It's actually a really beautiful part of the country. Except for the fact that there's about a hundred different ways you can end up dead there if you don't know what you're doing or, well, you're really unlucky. Another pause. Anyway, whenever the army wants to pacify an area, they send in units like mine first to do reconnaissance and try to establish some kind of, well, relationship with the local tribal elders. Now, you might not believe this, but establishing trust with these men is something I'm good at. I learned to do it with some success in Sadr City in Iraq. And I guess the army thought I'd be able to do the same in Korangal. Yeah, but the problem is the people in the Afghan highlands are a lot different than the people in Sadr City. I mean, they're mountain people for the most part. And incredibly superstitious. Superstitious? Yeah. They believe in stuff that people like you and me would dismiss out of hand. Like what? I asked, completely wrapped. I was seeing a side of my brother I'd never seen before. I'd always known he was intelligent. But his gruffness and quick temper had sometimes made it hard for people to see that. Even I had trouble seeing it, and I'd known him my entire life. He thought for a moment. Okay, well, here's a good example. Some people in the Korangal actually believe it's bad luck to cut your toes at night. Seriously. Seriously. You know, cut your toenails at night and you're basically inviting starvation and poverty into your home. I think it's even bad luck to cut your toenails and fingernails on the same day. He paused. Well, here's another one. I met an elder in one of those villages who actually believed if his sons chewed gum or ate chocolate given to them by American soldiers, they would never be able to grow beards. Oh shit. Jesus, I could write a book about this stuff. You could write a book about it. He ignored the statement and continued. Anyway, you can't just pass this sort of stuff off as nonsense. You do that, then the Krangle people will know. And they won't take you seriously. So you humored them. Exactly. And it worked, for the most part. We were actually making good progress, too. In the first three months I was there, I was able to get some of the people to feed me information about the enemy. A lot of people don't believe this, but the fact is, most of these people don't give a rat's ass about jihad. They just want to eke out whatever meager existence they can in those mountains, and be left alone to do it. Well, those first three months, man, we rounded up more than a hundred Taliban fighters, and we did it without firing a single shot. Yeah, we were really rolling. My platoon leader was happy, the regimental commanders were happy, and the tribal leaders were happy. And we moved deeper into the Korangal and continued to root out the Taliban wherever we could find it until... His voice trailed off. I waited for him to continue. When he didn't, I prompted him. Until... He sighed. We came across a village high in the mountains. At first, everything seemed to be going our way. Then the children started disappearing. He paused. At first the village elders thought it was the Taliban retaliating against them for cooperating with us. I thought so too. So my unit went on a tear. I mean, we got really aggressive with the militants and engaged. Didn't take long for most of them to hightail it out of the area. Problem was, the kids kept disappearing. Well, with the Taliban gone, the elders started to blame us. I gotta admit, I started to wonder about some of the guys in my unit. He'd been in the field a long time without much of a break, and like you said, I can get to some guys. So the lieutenant started rotating troops and announced that they could actually get some R&R. &R. But the problem persisted. That's when the village's elder chief summoned me to his house to talk. I thought maybe this was it. He was going to try to tell me we had to leave which would have caused a real ruckus because the chain of command wasn't just going to give hard-fought territory back to the Taliban. But that's not what he told me. 
What did he tell you? Mick was quiet for a moment. He told me this part of the Coringal was haunted. He said there was some kind of creature stealing the kids. Creature? What do you mean? Uh, there's no direct translation for what he called it in English, but for what it's worth, let's just say he called it a devil or a demon. Did you believe him? I believed he believed it, which is a lot different from me believing him, but no less important. Know what I mean? I nodded. He continued. I couldn't risk blowing the guy off. I had to show him I was taking him seriously, but I was prepared to, you know, act on his concerns. Otherwise, what little trust was left between my unit and his people would have gone kaput. So, I asked my lieutenant to give me a squad to go on deep patrol every night. Believe me when I tell you, that wasn't an easy sell with the brass. A deep patrol means going higher up into the mountains into territory we know very little about. It means potentially being cut off from the platoon and putting my guys at risk. But I sold it to the lieutenant, and we started nightly patrols at upwards of 10,000 feet. You gotta think about what that means. You've climbed Rainier. You know what it's like at an altitude, you know how hard it is to function. Imagine how hard it is to stay alert and at the ready. Yeah, I mean combat ready, at that elevation. 10,000 feet where some people start to see and hear things that aren't there. And you saw something. Yeah, I saw something. What? I asked. What did you see, Mick? Again, it took him a long time to answer. Well... We were about two weeks in on these night patrols, and I was just about ready to give up. My men were spent, and we hadn't seen shit. Not one single instance of engagement with the Taliban, much less any devil or demon. Not that I'd expected us to. No one's crazy enough to fight at that altitude. Not even the Taliban. I just ordered the squad to pack it in and head back to the village when... I thought I saw something move across the rocks on all fours. It was a full moon that night. I remember that very clearly. I had good visibility. I wasn't even using my thermals. Thermals are night vision goggles, I know. What was it? At first I thought it was some kind of animal. It didn't look to have any clothes or gear on, so I was sure it wasn't a man. And it moved like an animal. Then it looked at me. It looked at you. You mean it made eye contact? Yeah. And there was something about those eyes. I, I don't really know how to describe it. But there was an intelligence, you know, an awareness that animals don't have. And there was something else, too. Uh, a meanness. You know, a cruelty. I don't know what the right word is, but... Um, a malevolence. He pointed at me. Yeah, that's it. A malevolence. That thing looked at me, and I knew within a second that it hated me. It hated me and wanted to tear me apart. His hands instinctively went to the trigger on his deer rifle. That was it for me. I didn't hesitate. I held out to my guys and opened fire right then and there. Did you hit it? Not even close. It moved across the rocks, man, almost like a spider. Until it was within about 20 feet of us and then it was in the air. It had these massive wings that looked like they were made out of leather and, and arms and legs like a man. I mean, we kept firing, but I, I don't think anyone hit it. The next thing I knew, it had me pinned on the ground. I couldn't get to my weapon, and the other guys had stopped firing because they didn't want to hit me by mistake. It locked eyes with me for a few seconds and smiled. I'll never forget that. The damn thing smiled at me, and it ran its tongue over its teeth and clamped down on my shoulder. I expected to feel that sharp burn of pain when you get bit by a dog or something, but it wasn't like that. It was cold. Colder than the time we were playing pickup hockey with Maury Lewis and his brother on Omak Lake, and I fell through the ice. You remember that? I tried to kick and punch, but it was too strong. I couldn't move, and it wouldn't let go. It was like a pit bull with a bone, I'm telling you. If it weren't for my squad, I'd be dead now. Two of them managed to keep their heads about them and come in closer for a better shot, and they opened fire on it. To this day, man, I don't know for sure whether they hit it but it let go and flew off into the night. Then what happened? Well, lucky for me. I'd included our platoon's medic and the patrol personnel for that night. He wrapped up my shoulder, and I walked back to the village under my own power. He shrugged. Three hours later, I was airlifted to a field hospital. When I told the docs I'd been bitten by something, they jammed me full of rabies shots and kept me under quarantine for the next ten days. Once I was in the clear, they let me go back to my unit, 
By then, my wound had pretty much healed except for the ugly scar it left behind. In fact, the docs were pretty surprised at how fast it healed. Normally, an animal bite that deep can take three or four weeks to completely heal up. So, do you still have the wound? Mick tugged the pullover he was wearing down from his right shoulder to reveal the faint outline of a wound. At the center top and bottom of the bite radius were two sets of discernible puncture marks. He pointed at them, and that's where he got me. Those are the bastard's upper and lower incisors. Did anyone from the army look at them? Funny you should ask. One of the guys in my unit, a captain, is a veterinarian back home. He examined the wound and said it could not have been inflicted by any animal he knew of, much less any of the wildlife we knew to be indigenous to the Korangal. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he didn't, Mick countered, and then went on without waiting for me to argue. Anyway, I made my report to the platoon leader and went back on active duty. You told him you saw this thing. Hell no, Mick said. I told him it moved too fast for any of us to get a good look at it, and I had lieutenant bars riding on this tour. No way I was going to tell them what I saw up there, and I knew my men wouldn't either. No one would have believed us. He looked at me. Just like I can tell from the look on your face, you don't believe me either. Something he just said bothered me. I had a lieutenant's bars riding on this tour. I had, as in past tense. I started to feel bad for not believing him. I didn't say that. He didn't have to. I can see it in your eyes. Look, it's okay. I don't know if I would believe a story like this either if I were in your shoes. Plus, you're a reporter. Skepticism comes with the territory. Man, I'm telling you. I know what I saw. Mick, listen, you said it yourself. You were at 10,000 feet. The altitude was, I don't know, messing with your brain. Think about it. You're up high, it's night, you're on edge, and I wasn't on edge. Not any more than usual, anyway. Okay, but this is your fifth tour of duty in the combat zone. Do you really believe you're immune to the kind of stress that comes with being in fear of losing your life all the time? I didn't say I'm immune. Of course I'm not immune. But you didn't let me finish the story. I told you I was in a psychiatric hospital, right? Aren't you the least bit curious how I got there? He didn't wait for me to reply. After I rejoined the platoon, I took the exact same squad back out the very next chance I got to look for that thing. It went on for weeks. Every night we pressed higher and higher into the mountains. We were pretty close to 17,000 feet when the terrain became impassable. I wanted to press on, but the night had fallen and we didn't have the right climbing equipment. So I ordered my squad to turn back. And that's when it happened. I waited for him to continue, but he didn't. His gaze had drifted skyward, as if he were searching up in the clouds. What happened? Someone fell. No. What then? He closed his eyes. It was another bright night. He turned and looked at me. A full moon. I was the sweep that night, meaning I was bringing up the rear to make sure none of my guys fell behind. I remember looking into the darkness in the valley below, then back up at the moon. And that's when it hit me. This dull pain at the base of my neck. It felt a lot like when I got bit the month before. Cold at first. So cold it burned. And then it was like my skull was being hollowed out with the business end of a crowbar. I remember falling to my knees and blacking out. And then... And then what? And when I woke up, I was alone and covered in blood. Before I could ask, he said, I, I don't know what happened to my men. Well, that's not entirely true. I don't remember what happened to my men. I do know what happened to them. He looked at me. There must have been a struggle of some kind, because I woke up naked in a gully about four or five thousand feet below our last position. One of my guys, Morton, was next to me, face down. When I turned him over, I saw his eyes had been clawed out, his throat torn to shreds. Well, lucky for me, he was about my size, so I stripped off his FRACU. FRACU, a flame-resistant army combat uniform. Yeah, we got acronyms for everything. He paused. Once I was dressed, my head started to clear. I saw the terrain leading back up to our last position was tough, but not impassable. I took Morton's water and started to climb. I'd only gone about four or five hundred feet when I found Ballard. He was in even worse condition. His entire face had been clawed off. I only knew it was him from his tags. Another six or seven hundred feet, I found another one. Taggart. 
Same thing. Torn to pieces. He paused. I wanted more than anything to bury them, you know, not leave them for the animals to get to. I didn't have the strength, not with four or five thousand more feet of climbing to go. It took me better part of four days to pull myself up out of that gully, another day after that to get back to the village. Uh, when I got there, the elder who'd asked me to go looking for that thing wouldn't allow me to stay in the village. He wanted to hand me over to the Taliban. He kept screaming that more of their children had disappeared. There was something else, too. He knew. When he looked at me, he knew. I frowned. Knew what? That I'd been bitten. I could see it in his eyes. I think he was kind of like what the Indians here used to call a shaman. A medicine man. He knew what he was dealing with. And he didn't want any part of it. Luck was on my side again, though. About ten minutes after I got to the village, a Chinook flew over the side of the mountain. I flagged it, and thirty minutes later, I was back in the field hospital. From there, they sent me to the psych ward at a VA stateside, which was where I was up until yesterday afternoon. I shook my head and blew the air out of my lungs. Jesus. Jesus Christ, Mick, that, that thing, it killed all your men. I can't. I, I can't believe it. Did you see it again? He looked at me quizzically, and a sad smile appeared on his face. You don't get it, do you? Did I see it again? Well, no. As a matter of fact, I didn't. He looked back up at the sky. But I got a feeling you might get a pretty good look at it before the night is through. Wait a second. Are you saying... He nodded. That's impossible. Denny, listen to me. No, I interrupted him. That's crazy. It may be crazy, but it's also true. I shook my head. Look, no offense, but maybe the army let you out of the psych ward a little too soon. What you're saying isn't possible. There's no such thing as monsters. I don't believe in that stuff. I knew you'd react this way. I did. So I'll tell you what. Tonight's a full moon. We'll wait for the sun to go down, and then we'll see whether I'm crazy. I laughed. What, are you gonna turn into the wolf man or something? He gave me a sober look. I don't know what it is I've become. All I do know is I'm responsible for the deaths of six of my men, and the Lord only knows how many children. Mick, that's ridiculous. So says you. Look, I'm worried about you, man. You need to talk to someone. You need to talk to someone before you really fuck up and cost yourself a career. My career is over, man. The army discharged me the day before yesterday, and he shook his head. No lieutenant's bar for this guy. I'm finished. He sighed. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. You plant your entire command, I guess it's expected they'll shit-can you. Mick, I'm sorry. Nah, it's alright. Compared to the guys in my squad, all I got was a nasty bite. I guess you could say I got off lucky. Mick's eyes were somber, and neither of us said anything for a long time. As dusk set in, I turned Mick's story over and over in my head, trying to make some kind of sense of it. But I couldn't. No matter how I looked at it, I kept coming back to the same conclusion. That my brother, the brother I'd always worshipped, the brother who'd always looked out for me, had suffered a complete mental breakdown. He'd succumbed to what old soldiers had once called shell shock. I mean, there's no other explanation. Something else bothered me too. Something he'd said earlier, before he'd launched into the story of his final days in the Karangal. I know I can trust you. That's why I brought you out here with me. What the hell had he meant by that? What did he expect me to do? Won't be long now, he said, interrupting my thoughts. His eyes were on the quickly darkening sky. High above, the moon's pale glow shone like a celestial spotlight on the wider Okanagan Valley. I glanced at the moon. Just then, something else he said had popped into my head. I'm responsible for the deaths of six of my men, and the Lord knows how many children. My eyes went to Mick, and exactly why he'd brought me out here became all too clear. I won't do it, Mick. I won't. You have to, he said, before I hurt someone else. This is crazy. He clasped the back of my neck and pulled me so close we were eye to eye. Enough of that. He smiled. It's all right, brother, he said.
his voice taking on an almost serene quality. That's all right. I'm ready. This is the only way. No, I said, breaking free of his grip and shaking my head. No, there has to be another way. There isn't. Then you do it, you fucking asshole. I yelled and stood up. You want to die so bad, you do it. He got to his feet too. You think I haven't tried to eat my service weapon? Well, I have. And too many times to count. His voice was full of despair. I can't do it, Denny. I can't. No matter how many times I try, I can't make myself pull the trigger. He looked at me in the eyes. I need you to do it for me. I'm begging you. Please. Do this for me. Please. No. I said it with a quiet, flat finality that I hoped would put an end to it. It didn't. You don't have a choice. You have to. The hell are you saying? I'm saying you don't have a choice. You'll just be prey. You hear me? You'll be nothing but prey to me. You'll have to do it. If you want to live through the night, if you want to see the sun come up tomorrow morning, then you'll do what I'm asking before it's too late. I dropped my gun from the deer perch. It landed on the forest floor below with a thud. No. No. I won't do it. You can't ask that of me. It's not fair. I know it's not fair. I know that. But you're the only one I can trust. You hear me? You have to do it. I wiped tears from the corner of my eyes and continued to shake my head. You're insane. This whole thing is insane. There's no such thing as monsters. This is all in your head. It's the truth, Denny. I wish it wasn't, but it is. By now, the sky had turned black. Mick turned his rifle safety off, laid it at my feet, and stood at the edge of the deer perch. When it happens, you can't hesitate. Do you understand me? You absolutely cannot hesitate. I refused to pick up the rifle. I won't do it. His voice was quiet now. I love you, Denny. Mick. He fell to his knees and clutched his head, so I couldn't see his face. When he looked up, his features were bathed in white moonlight, and I saw his eyes had turned. They were no longer my brother's eyes, or even a man's eyes. They were the eyes of an animal. He crumpled to his side, then lifted himself up with his arms, screaming and shaking his head like an angry hound with a rabbit in his mouth. The back of his shirt ripped open and I stepped back in horror as something began to move underneath his skin. Hard, bony nails grew from the ends of his fingers as he writhed in agony on the deer perch's floor. Jesus, I mumbled. Jesus Christ. He locked eyes with me and then let out a high-pitched scream. A flock of birds took flight from the branches of a nearby tree and disappeared into the night. The sight of what my brother had become made me recoil and I took another step backwards, only this one was out into empty air. I lost my balance, reaching desperately for the side of the deer perch, but it was too late. A moment later, I fell. The thing my brother had become peeked its head over the side of the perch and watched as I slammed into the ground, landing on my left side. The impact knocked the wind out of me. Another eardrum-piercing scream emanated from the perch up above. I somehow got to my feet and went to raise my arms behind my head so I could open up my lungs and get some air. A burning sensation shot up my left arm, and I cried out in pain and let it dangle at my side uselessly. The impact had snapped it in two at the elbow. Still struggling for breath, I looked up at the deer perch. It was empty. Panic set in then, and I scanned the forest floor for my deer rifle. It lay on its side about ten feet away. As I went for it, I heard what sounded like the sharp flapping of leathery wings and felt the displacement of the cool October air just a few feet above my head. Something sharp latched onto my shoulder, and the next thing I knew I was thrown into the air. I slammed into the hard, massive trunk of a Douglas fir and fell to the ground, bouncing my head off a branch on the way down and opening a deep gash over my right eye. Immediately, my eyes went to the rifle again, and I made another lunge for it. This time, I made it. My right hand fell on the stalk. I grabbed it and ran for the cover of trees. Up above, I caught glimpses of a fast-moving shadow maneuvering in flight through the branches, every move calculated and executed with the grace of a natural predator. I wobbled as I ran my broken left arm and the heavy rifle in my right hand making it nearly impossible to navigate the trees and thickets, and it was all but inevitable that I lost my balance and fell. The rifle skidded across the forest floor and landed with its barrel submerged in a shallow stream, just out of reach. Searing pain coursed up my broken left arm, but even as I yelled out in agony, my eyes remained focused on the rifle. My right hand once again landed on the stalk, and I forced myself to turn over onto my back and scan the trees for any sign of the creature. 
It took less than a second for my field of vision to be filled by its hideous glowing eyes and wide, open mouth. Two pairs of sharp incisors, just like my brother had described, jutted from the top and bottom rows of teeth. It was smiling at me, just as it had smiled at my brother that night in the Corangle. Mixed words came back to me then. When it happens, you can't hesitate. Do you understand me? You absolutely cannot hesitate. I did it. I jammed the rifle into the creature's shoulder and pulled the trigger. The booming shot lifted the creature upward and slammed it into a thick, low-hanging branch, snapping the branch in two. The winged animal form fell to the ground and the broken branch smashed into its head, driving its face into the dirt. I used the stock of the rifle to push myself up and then struggled to pull back the bolt and chamber another round. The creature was once again almost upright. I drove the round home and placed the barrel square in the middle of the creature's back. I'm sorry, Mick, I said, crying. I'm so sorry. I closed my eyes and pulled the trigger, almost immediately losing my footing from the force of the shot. The back of my head struck an exposed tree root, and the world went black. I don't know how long it was until I came to, but when I did... I found my brother's naked form lying face down on the forest floor, a baseball-sized crater wound in his chest. Still somewhat dazed, I made my way over to him and turned him over. His eyes were open and stared back at me still, empty and lifeless. I brushed my hand over them and pulled him upright with my one good arm and lay his head against my chest. It was then that I noticed the bite wound on his shoulder had disappeared. Before long, no more than an hour, I'd say, I heard the soft high notes of a swallow's morning song, and, soon after, watched the first blue rays of sunlight break through the trees high above. That was Ambrose Stolliker's The Darkness in the Valley Below, as read by Matt Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at McFly. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. If you haven't already, we would love your support over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it certainly isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week as a labor of love and terror for all of us. And a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage at tales to terrify.com. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can infect new ears with dark tales. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we creep into your mind with more Tales to Terrify.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.